Hello, everybody, and welcome to episode 27 of I Wish You Were Dead, a podcast about things that used to be alive. My name is Mike, and that is Gavin. Gavin, I feel like 27 is significant, but I don't know why. Hmm. Yeah, I got nothing. Yeah, neither do I. I, it, feels I like a, it feels like a cool number, though. I don't know. Like, It feels like <laughs> vaguely significant for some reason, but I'm sure it isn't. I'm sure it only seems that way now since you said it. Yeah, right. I've, I've put that into your head. Right, and I don't <laughs> like it. Anyway, welcome. Uh, welcome, everybody. So I think we're going to get um, right into the show today, if we can. Just a couple quick announcements before we get started. Once again, we have a Twitter account. You can follow us on Twitter, where Gavin will retweet a whole bunch of different things and put out some original tweets. Um, you've been a little more active on there uh, over the last couple of weeks, from what I remember. Is that right? Absolutely. I've been finding lots of uh, really neat, like open source type articles. So if you want to read about, you know, real paleontological research uh, without having to be affiliated with like a university or having to pay to get past whatever company's paywall, uh, follow us on Twitter and, and check out some of the interesting articles that I've been tweeting out. Absolutely. And that is dead podcast underscore at dead podcast underscore. Absolutely. We have those same forms that we always have where you can go ahead and request a topic or tell us about a specific guest that you want to check out. And of course we have Gavin's blog that uh, hopefully will be coming out of hibernation very soon. Hopefully. Yes. So I, as I, we mentioned uh, last week or maybe two weeks ago, I'm not sure. Uh, we, Mike and I both volunteer for a youth leadership organization. Um, I do more than one weekend of it, though. Uh, so I'm in between my second and third of three weekends right now. Uh, and the one coming up is the one where I have most responsibilities. Uh, <laughs> so, uh, yeah, it's been it's been a very busy couple weeks. Ideally, sometime next week or the week after, uh, there'll be some some new activity going on. It will be uh, de-extincted, I guess, the, the blog will. <laughs> So <laughs> it will be back from the dead. So um, those are just some quick updates. We don't plan on doing those at the beginning of every show, but we just wanted to make sure those get uh, said right up front now. Absolutely. And so before we actually get in the show, we have to go ahead and talk about this week in science. So we're going to take a look here. Um, Gavin's got the calendar. I'm sure going to go ahead and guess we are taking a look at something from the year. Oh, I'm going to go out on a limb on this one. I'm not feeling very confident, but I'm going to say 2013. No, this is one of the older ones oh. that I've seen from this calendar. So this is from June 17th. So tomorrow, if you're listening to this today, it comes out. But of 2009. Wow, I thought 2013 yeah. was going back a ways, but all right. So uh, the headline is Nutcracker Dinosaur Discovered in Gobi Desert. <laughs> it's always interesting. And like, I haven't fully read uh, the little paragraph here, but it's always interesting when we find a new dinosaur or new anything realistically uh doing something that you don't expect it to do to do or it's at least interpreted to be doing something that you don't expect so let's let's dig a little deeper shall we right, let's do it so the paragraph says paleontologists from the university of chicago announced the discovery of a unique species of dinosaur the remains of which uh they said were found beneath the sands of the gobi desert in inner mongolia uh which they don't actually say but Inner Mongolia is actually not in the country of Mongolia. It is actually a province of China. Really? Yes. They don't That's specify amazing. that, but it is it is it is like an autonomous province of China. So it has much more self governance uh, than some of the other province provinces do. But the more you know, uh, it continues. Interestingly, experts say the dinosaur was first on record or was the first on record, they thought to consume a diet of primarily nuts. Dated to the mid-Cretaceous period, uh, or nearly 110 million years old, scientists say that the dinosaur possessed an abundance of gizzard stones, which it used to grind and digest tough objects such as nuts and seeds. Additionally, the angle of the dinosaur's jaws represented a type of chewing mechanism that paleontologists say may have gone unrecognized in other related herbivorous dinosaurs. Hmm. They don't actually give what the species is, though. <laughs> that seems like an oversight. Right. Like, they don't give the name of it. But <laughs> we should we should uh, make our own calendar. We should. Just because, like, I don't know. 
this one it's, it's provided us with some good ammo, but like it's also lacking quite a bit in a few places. Yeah, it was, you know, it is it is a solid place to start, but you'd think that, you know, yeah, stuff like that, like the actual species of dinosaur, you'd think they'd be able to cover. Yeah, right? Like, that's the thing that most people care about, where it's like, oh, cool, this nut-eating dinosaur, what's it called? Oh, I don't know. <laughs> right, am I going to Google nut-eating dinosaur? I'm a little worried what that's going to turn up on Google, but... Mm. Yeah, be careful. <laughs> yeah. Not only will I be careful, I will not be doing it. Uh, what we will be doing is getting right into uh, today's episode. So today's episode is one we have sort of teased and hinted at, I think, in different ways since really the start of our podcast together. So, Gavin, what is it that we're going to be talking about today? So uh, I want to preface this with a couple things. Number one, uh, this is not going to be an episode really about climate change. Uh, this is going to be sort of the required reading before we do that episode eventually. It will come, probably not in like the immediate future, like it won't be next week. Um, but yeah, so this is some of the background about fossil fuels and why they are bad. Because for the climate change episode, uh, you know, I'm going to talk about climate change throughout history and how it is relevant to the climate change going on today. So that's sort of the layout for the future. Uh, the other yes, thing that is... I wanted to preface this with was that this was actually requested by a friend of the pod, my girlfriend Liz, uh, just a couple of days ago. So Very good friend of the pod. <laughs> um, no, I mean, this sounds like it's going to be the um, sort of like the precepts. Like you have to, in order to be able to talk about climate change, you have to understand like what fossil fuels are. Like we've talked, like you've probably heard about fossil fuels your entire life. Um, but you know, and we've heard that they're bad, but like, why are they bad? How does, how does that actually work? And I know that's something that even for me, like I, you know, I am aware fossil fuels are bad, but it'll be good to have a more firm understanding of exactly how that works. Exactly. And, um, so some of the main things we're going to go over in this episode is why they're called fossil fuels. What are they made of and why aren't they renewable? Because if they're made if they're made out of fossils, presumably they're made out of dead things. Things die all the time. Why aren't they renewable? Um, and we're going to talk about there are many different kinds of fossil fuels, but the three that we're going to talk about today are probably the three biggest ones that most people have probably heard about, which are oil or petroleum. I'm going to use both of those kind of interchangeably. They mean roughly the same thing. Mm-hmm. Natural gas and coal. So some things that all three of these have in common is that they are formed from hydrocarbons, which are kind of exactly what they sound like. It is a carbon atom with hydrogen around it. So uh, hydrocarbons are unique in that, so if you think way back to like high school biology, you might know the chemical formula for sugar or uh, glucose, which is... Ooh, this is coming to my... Wait, can I try? Oh, yeah, go ahead. I, if so, if I remember correctly, this I don't know why this is burned in my brain, but I think it's C6H12O6. You are absolutely correct. Oh, yes. So that is not a hydrocarbon because it is not just carbon and hydrogen. It's got the oxygens in there, which make it a different class of molecule. Right. So carbon is a really neat element, and it's really... It's neat in ways that make it useful for life. There's a reason why all life on Earth is carbon-based, quote-unquote. So carbon, there's going to be a really... Sorry, have you ever seen the movie, the Jimmy Neutron? The Jimmy Neutron Of course I have. Do you remember the part of the end for no reason? They're like, we're carbon-based life forms? Mm Mm-hmm. I've never quite understood what it meant to be a carbon-based life form, but that was always funny to me. Basically, every kind of macromolecule that we use uses carbon as its base with a cup with like one or two exceptions. Obviously I'm not like a biochemist. Um, so don't, don't come for me. Um, but (laughs) But broadly speaking, carbon is, you know, in, you know, every, every molecule we're going to be using in some form or another. Pretty much. Unless it's like an isolated ion that we use. We use a lot of different ions for things. Um, but carbon is essential to every form of life. Everything from, you know, us to, you know, plants to just like single-celled bacteria. Everything needs carbon. 
And there's a particular reason for it. So I'm going to do a little bit of very basic kind of chemistry stuff here. So this is, this is kind of, you know, high school chemistry slash maybe even like middle school science. I don't remember. But so an atom has its nucleus, right? Yes. And that has two types of uh, things in it. There's our, they are protons and neutrons. They make up the nucleus, the center part of the atom. And then you have what's frequently drawn as just like rings of electrons around it. It's much more complicated than rings, but that's just a simple metaphor. So we're, we're going with it. Um, they typically always draw the first ring, the closest ring to the nucleus as having only two electrons with the exception of hydrogen because it only has one. But, uh, what's convenient about that is that every ring outside of the first one has eight maximum electrons. So that first ring, like that, it can fit two, and then each subsequent ring can fit a maximum of eight electrons. Right. Okay. And depending on how many electrons it has in the outermost ring, determines if it likes to steal electrons from other atoms, or give away electrons to other atoms. So, for example, if its outermost ring only has one, it wants to give that away because it wants the outermost ring to be full. And if it gets rid of that one pesky electron, then its outermost ring, which is the one, you know, inside from that, because that ring is now gone, because that electron's gone, is now full. It was always my understanding this is why we always referred to oxygen as O2, because oxygen doesn't like to be by itself. It always wants to be bonded with literally anything, including itself. That's a different kind of bond, but same idea, yes. Okay. Um... So, but carbon's in a really neat spot because carbon uh, has two in the inside loop, like in the inside, in the inside ring, like it's supposed okay. to. So that one's full. And then in its outermost one, it has four. So it's half full. It is. Okay. Which means it is essentially, for, for all intents and purposes, the math doesn't, it's slightly off, but it is essentially equally likely to give or get electrons, which means that it can bond with almost anything. That seems like a, I mean, advantage is probably the wrong word, but like that seems to actually make some sense as to why we see carbon in just a whole bunch of different, you know, molecules, a whole bunch of different substances. You always see carbon hanging around. Right. And don't get me wrong. Like there are other elements that have that too. Um, like for example, let's see, what would be, eight above that. So that would be the, the, whatever element number 14 is, I don't know the periodic table as well as I used to element number 14, uh, would be the same scenario, but because carbon a is much more abundant than whatever that is. Um, the fact that I don't know what it is off the top of my head probably is kind of indicative of that. I am looking it up right now. At least if it's my silicon, is it silicon, which yes. that also makes sense. Silicon is also extremely common, not nearly as common as carbon is. Um, at least in life, but, uh, silicon is, has like an extra ring to it. So, but because it's like the closest ring to the atom that can have eight makes carbon again, much more likely to give or get and much more willing to, because closer to the, to the nucleus of the atom, you know, is, is positive and electrons are negative. So they want to be close. So if you try to fill the closest one that inherently makes it more attractable to electrons, if that makes sense. Mm -hmm. But so carbon is a really unique element in that way. And it makes it really easy for it to bond to a lot of things. But frequently, as we're talking about today, it bonds to uh, hydrogen, and then also it really likes to bond to other carbons. It likes that a lot. Um, and so some of the really common hydrocarbons are things that you've probably heard of, but didn't know were this. So that'd be things like methane. Oh, methane is one carbon surrounded by four hydrogens because mm -hmm. the four hydrogens each have one electron. They give that to the carbon and then the carbon's happy because it's now full. 
Uh, some other common ones are propane. Oh, okay. Lots propane, of gases. Yeah, propane is a string of three carbons all surrounded by hydrogens. Butane, which is lighter fluid, that is four carbons in a chain. And then octane, which, as you might guess, is eight. So these are very common. And if you notice something about those four compounds, they're all highly flammable. <laughs> yes. That's kind of what they're known for. You know, use propane right. in your grills. You use butane in your lighters. Uh, use octane in cars, I, I guess. I don't... That, that one's mostly yeah. used, like, in some... Neither am I. Some kind of fuels. Like, you'll see it on, like, the... Uh, gas station, you know, whichever like thing you hit for whatever kind of gas you want. Um, you know, it'll say whatever kind of octane uh, gas. And that's for reasons that we're going to talk about in a little bit. So let's, let's sort of get into it. So now we're going to start breaking down these three different kinds of fossil fuels that we're talking about today. So Mike, we'll, we'll start with oil slash petroleum. Okay. What do you know about oil? Um, so not much. It's my understanding that it is generally liquid. It is made from organic. So this is, for those of you that don't know how we do this, I don't actually know the answer here. I am uh, doing my best to guess. <laughs> um, but so liquid um, made from organic material that has spent thousands, if not millions of years um, being either compacted or decomposing or you know going through some sort of substantive change um, generally underground. Um, I don't know. I don't think I know much beyond that other than again, liquid made from organic material, but it takes an incredibly long time to actually undergo that process. I mean, that's, those are all the important points realistically. Okay. Um, but some of the biggest things about oil is, uh, just to make it slightly more like relatable, some of the things we use it for, because mm -hmm. we use petroleum in some form in almost everything, at least like here in the United States. So things that are derivatives of crude oil is sometimes, as you'll hear it, is like the unrefined version. But okay. it's used for things like gasoline, diesel, jet fuel, plastics, uh, lubricants such as you know, your motor oils, things like that, waxes, as well as asphalt. So That's a rather wide range of things that it's all used in. Plastic is used in nearly everything. <laughs> Quick sidebar, somebody was talking about, you know, besides the internet, what's really changed between now and, you know, the 1950s or the 1920s? And I was reading somewhere, it was like, if you say that, you don't understand just how much plastic has taken over the mm -hmm. planet. You know, just how plastic is in. If you look around and you're like, oh God, plastic is everywhere. Yeah. And I, I'll talk a little bit about plastic toward the end. But that's not the main focus of what we're talking about in this episode. Um, but those are some of the just the main things that petroleum is used for. So a really common thing that I see as usually like a, a meme or, or something, you know, teachers who like to be fun will like put <laughs> memes on like their door, like start like the off their lectures with a slide of a meme or something. <laughs> I, guilty as charged. Right. So some uh, earth science teachers probably have, have used or at least seen some kind of meme that is something to the effect of dinosaurs being turned into oil. I, I can imagine any number of memes that, you know, that go about this. Right. There's, a, there's one particular one that I have in mind that's like a dinosaur being turned into like a plastic toy dinosaur, <laughs> which haha, funny meme, but like, no. <laughs> oh, okay. Um, by and large, um, animals do not get turned into oil. It's, it's not like impossible, but it's not by far the most, uh, common source of oil. Animals don't get turned into really. Mostly okay. because there's not enough of them. Okay. They don't have enough organic material. Because, so oil forms in ocean environments. Oil will not form from a terrestrial environment. Mm -hmm. And deep ocean. And 
the like you know super deep parts of the ocean are basically a desert there's just not enough animal life there hmm, okay. but what there is a lot of uh if you know oceans are functioning properly lots of little tiny itty bitty microorganisms right things like just single celled and you know small organisms Right, things like algae that do photosynthesis, and then there's also uh, zooplankton, which eat those that are also microscopic in size, but they eat the microscopic plant things. So those are, by and large, what makes oil. If a fish happens to die and fall in with those, yeah, that'll probably turn to oil too. But it's not like that's the main component of oil. Wow, okay. Um, so like I said, so this is, I'm going to walk you through basically how oil forms and this is greatly oversimplified. There's a lot of weird geochemical things that even I don't truly understand, but this is very simplistically how it works. So basically millions and more likely billions of these little microscopic guys, most of whom do photosynthesis. But of course, like I said, there's things living among the photosynthetic ones that eat the photosynthetic ones. They all die. And then sink. And one, some of them will make it to the bottom, just statistically, because there's billions of them, especially over the course of millions of years. And some of them will decompose on the way down. Probably most of them will decompose or get eaten by something on the you know their fall from the surface to the seafloor. Mm-hmm. But given the timescales that we're working with here and just the sheer amount of them, a lot of them are still going to make it to the bottom. And the bottom of the ocean is really anoxic, which, as it kind of sounds, it means that the water has very little oxygen, which makes it really good for preserving things. Meaning okay, that there's, you know, things being decomposed uses oxygen. But if the amount of things falling into the, the bottom of the ocean is faster than the decomposers can decompose. Not everything is going to get decomposed. Makes sense. So over time, and we're talking, you know, hundreds of thousands to millions of years, all those little tiny single cells will build up and then eventually get covered with some kind of actual sediment, you know, clays, sand, stuff, something like that. Mm-hmm. And all the pressure of a, the rock, but also B just all of the, you know, all those cells laying on top of each other, all those like organisms and their dead lifeless cell bodies laying on top of each other puts a lot of pressure on them. And so it compacts them, uh, into something called carrageen, which is technically to my knowledge, not a rock, but you'd be, You'd be forgiven if you called it a rock. It is a rather hard substance that is not really like uniform in its hydrocarbon content or its chemical structure, but it's basically just like a really compressed mass of all of these dead cells. Okay, so it's it it looks like a rock, but it's not technically a rock. It's just a whole bunch of dead cells that have been compacted together. Right. That sounds like a sedimentary rock. Am I am I off? It it would be. Um, it's it's different from things like limestone in that limestone. So one of the definitions of a rock is that it needs to be made out of a mineral. And okay. um, minerals. One of the one of the definitions of a mineral is that it needs to have a like clear uh, chemical structure. Okay. Which carrageen does not. Carrageen is very irregular. You know, it's not like if you take carrageen from one place and compare it to carrageen from another place, they'll be the same. Whereas if you take quartz from one place and quartz from another place, there might be very small chemical inclusions that are different between each of the two quartz crystals, but they'll still be like 99.99% SiO2. Whereas Mm -hmm. carrageen varies a lot. Um, But one thing that carrageen always has is really long chains of the hydrocarbons, not sort of the nice, neat, just like a handful of carbons surrounded by uh, 
hydrogens. They'll do some weird things with making rings with, with the carbons, which is a more stable structure, but uh, not as uh, flammable because it is more stable. Mm-hmm. So if you were to try to burn carrageen, like it'd probably burn, but it would not burn nearly as efficiently as like methane would. Okay. So that would be like if you like interrupted it or, you know, there's a really big uplift event that lifted it up too soon, you would just get an exposed bed of carrageen. And then that would all erode and go back into the carbon cycle. But if you keep, you know, pushing it down and down and down and under more pressure, all of those more stable bonds will break in the carrageen, making the smaller, less stable versions of the hydrocarbons, things like the methane, the propane, the butane. And it's when it gets to that point, it becomes much more liquid E because you think methane is a gas, but things like propane and butane, you can keep if it's pressurized in liquid form pretty easily. Right. So when it breaks down into the simple hydrocarbons, it becomes more liquid E as opposed to the carrageen, which is more solid. When it becomes more liquidy, it can now sort of seep into some of the gaps in the rock that was put on top of all those dead, st- all that dead stuff. Right. It can, it can fill in the cracks. Right. Or in some cases, if the rock on top of it is a sandstone, you know, there's gaps in between the sand grains that are mm-hmm. fairly big, which is why uh, all of the, uh, like the, have you ever heard the, the expression like tar sands? I have heard that expression and I haven't thought enough to actually know what it means. That's what that is. It's essentially a sandstone unit where there's a ton of oil in it in the spaces between the sand grains. Mm-hmm. Okay. And if there's not too much in the way of like really solid rock layers, if it's just a bunch of sandstone, all that oil will eventually seep to the top and, you know, eventually be broken down by something eventually. Uh, some kind of microbes. There are microbes that can break down oil. It takes a really long time, but they can do it. When it becomes really useful, and what people who look for oil look for is what's called a cap rock. It's usually a layer of something like a shale, which is much harder to go through than a sandstone. And especially if there is sort of a fold, which makes sort of like uh, a frown type like, like like a hill basically in mm-hmm. in the rocks because as we've talked about rocks can be folded and bent up in all sorts of weird ways just by the continents moving around and so what the the best conditions for finding oil would be a cap rock layer of some kind of shale on top of uh one of these tar sand type units that has been folded to make sort of an a type shape because what that does is as the oil becomes more liquidy and becomes warmer because you're pushing it further down into the earth it'll become less dense and rise to the top of that layer until it can't go through the cap rock anymore and it'll sit at sort of the top part of that a shape and make a reservoir does all that sort of make sense it's it's it makes sense. You went a little fast, but I think I think I have the, like the basic idea. Okay, um, but just, sort of just to reiterate, just so everyone you know, on any potential listeners are also on the same page. You've got your layer of dead stuff, some sediment on top of it. That as the uh, dead stuff is pushed down, it becomes more liquidy and more concentrated as the useful to humans kind of hydrocarbons. If there is a layer on top of that that the liquidy oil can't go through the oil will try to rise, but can't and get stuck on the bottom of that layer and get trapped in like a big pocket of oil. And that's what people who uh, drill for oil look for. Right. So as, you know, as the organic stuff falls down, becomes more liquid, gets more, you know, compressed under different layers of uh, sediment, the, you know, they will kind of naturally form the, for lack of a term, I'm going to call it a bubble of oil that can be, you know, eventually found and drilled and used for humans. Is that about right? Pretty much. Um, Now I have one question. Yeah. 
what happens if there's more organic stuff that continues falling? So it's not just, you know, layer of organic stuff and then, you know, more things on top. It's, you know, you know, organic stuff is falling in addition to, you know, other layers being, you know, pushed on top. Then like, that's just kind of constantly happening. Um, that could potentially add to the oil content if it gets pushed down far enough. But generally mm -hmm. you only see, um, like, they're called petroliferous, you know, oil rich layers. Right. Um, if, if there is that really solid time of very little sediment deposition and just really concentrated uh, dead stuff. Because, you know, if you have... It, it even still surprises me how much things will get compressed. Because you could have, like... Say, like, for example, 100 feet of dead stuff before it gets compressed, that could be compressed by the time it's oil down to like, a, like a foot, a couple feet. Wow. Yeah. It's, it's wow. really crazy. And granted that is, I don't have any, you know, there, there's no way to measure that things compact at different ways. That's how you get different like hardnesses of rocks. Right. Uh, or what's called in duration, like how well stuck together all, are the pieces in the rock. Um, so that that's just me kind of throwing numbers out there. But if someone were to tell me that 100 feet of sediment turn into this, you know, one foot layer of rock, that would not at all surprise me. And so we're talking about like, like I said, t hundreds of thousands to millions of years of no sediment just dead stuff falling to the bottom, then getting covered in sediment before that can all decompose as it would normally. So while the sediment is falling, there's obviously more, you know, things in the water column dying and falling with the, the now sand or clay that makes up the layer on top of the, right. all the original dead stuff, but it's just not concentrated enough and it doesn't, it doesn't hinder the, the stuff below it from being turned into the hydrocarbons. Gotcha. Okay. And then once, you know, people find the reservoir in the rock, they drill through the cap layer and just basically suck up the oil. And that's how we get oil. And this is the oil that like I put in my car. Not directly. Um, it it so goes the, through the, a number of processes, I assume, but like. Right. And so, you're, yeah, the big thing with oil is that it is, like I said earlier, crude oil is what's usually called before it's refined, because generally oil has uh, a good mixture of the, the different kinds of compounds that have between six and 10 carbons in a chain. Um, you know, like I said, how, uh, you know, like uh, propane is three carbons. Basically, mm -hmm. the equivalent of that, but between 6 and 10 carbons. Okay. So, it has to be refined. You know, there's different amounts and different kind of fuels. Like, jet fuel has, like, a different ratio of, you know, like, the, you know, 6 carbon thing to the to the 8 carbon thing to the 10 carbon thing. They have different ratios depending on what you're using it for. All right. So, that is oil slash petroleum. So the next one we're going to talk about, because it is fairly similar, um, at least in, in a lot of respects, not everything, um, but it's much more similar than coal. So we're going to talk about natural gas next. So Mike, what do you know about natural gas? Uh, not a whole lot. Um, I, uh, fracking comes to mind. I don't know if um, it, sure it actually matches. I believe, and I might be way off base on this, I believe hearing that the actual like burning of natural gas it might be better for the environment than the burning of like oil or coal. Not that it's good and mm -hmm. not that the process of getting that natural gas is all that safe, but like just like the strictly apples to apples, the burning of each of those fuels. I feel like natural gas is, um, uh, is better for the environment, but I don't, like, I have always in my head kind of equivocated natural gas and just like petroleum oil without really considering the differences. Okay. Um, we will definitely talk about it being cleaner or not uh, in a little bit, but that is 
pretty fair. It is very commonly associated with petroleum oil. Um, Mm -hmm. But natural gas is mostly used these days for heat. Uh, You know, people will burn it, you know, for like their furnace in their house. That's mostly what it's used for. Okay. Um, Is there a reason for that, that it's not used in like cars or jet fuel or anything? Like, is there a particular reason it's better for that? So all of the energy, well, yes, for this next moment that I will talk about here. So natural gas, you know, unlike uh, petroleum, which I said was a a mixture of mostly high carbon compounds, is almost entirely methane, Mm -hmm. which only has one carbon. And the more carbon something has, the more energetic it is when you burn it which is why high octane fuel is good for things like race cars. Because when you burn an octane, which has eight carbons, it is much more energetic than when you burn methane, just because there's more bonds to break, which is how you get the energy. Okay. So the more bonds that you're breaking, you know, per atom or per molecule, the more efficient you're going to be more explosive. You're going to have a burn. At least the more total energy you will give off. Okay. Because in some chemical reactions, it could happen over a longer amount of time, but technically be a higher amount of heat if the reaction is just slower to happen. Right. But yeah, so there's just many more bonds to break, which give off energy with the high carbon content molecules as opposed to methane, which is, like I said, what natural gas is almost entirely. So... It is formed very similarly to uh, petroleum, but the gas parts separate out when uh, the oil becomes more liquidy like that. The more dense and more uh, heavy, so like the higher carbon content molecules like the octane, will become more liquidy, while as ones that happen to break down into methane instead will turn into gas because Methane is very hard to turn into a liquid. Uh, much harder oh, to turn really? into a liquid. Yeah, just because it is, uh, it's it just because it's smaller. Thought about it. Yeah, uh, you. I mean, you can still do it, give it enough pressure, but it is much harder to turn into a liquid. You need a lot more pressure to turn into a liquid than you do with propane or butane. Mm-hmm. Um, but yeah, so it will essentially, as oil forms, like we just talked about there will frequently be sort of a bubble on top of the oil bubble made out of natural gas, mostly methane. So when they find that reservoir, that bubble of oil, they can sort of suck out the, the gas part first and then not the, and then after they're done with that, take out the liquid part or there's, I'm sure there's some way to do both at the same time. That really is cool though. Yeah. Like, like all of the engineering that goes into oil extraction is really interesting and really, you know, it's, it is really just a marvel of engineering. I just wish that it did something different. Um, right. Like we, we can separate out the, the good hard work that engineers have done to do this from the, some of the consequences of that. Right. Uh, and like, so that's not, that's not the only way that natural gas can form. It can form by itself. Um, typically in smaller areas than you know a big reservoir basically a big lake which like the the petroleum reservoirs can be like the size of like a small to medium-sized city wow which like well just because you know think about if you've got billions and billions of things falling to their death over hundreds of thousands to millions of years that covers a pretty wide area you know no that that makes total sense just when you when you put it like that like that's that's a huge Mm -hmm. um so sometimes if they're smaller than that but still do happen to break down in a way that makes you know these usable hydrocarbons they will sometimes turn into natural gas and all break down completely into methane uh so you can get methane without uh petroleum but these days it is much more common to get natural gas while getting petroleum with the exception of doing things like fracking so for those not aware, fracking is basically you pump water um, with really 
high amounts of pressure uh, and also usually some chemicals to help break through the rocks. We pump it into the rocks and fracture the rocks is what's called fracking. Um, and by fracturing the rocks, you free up some of this trapped methane, which there might not be a big bubble of, but there might be lots of small bubbles in just this entire unit of rock. So if you break up the rock, the methane will take the easiest way out, which then is through the water that you are putting into that rock. And then you can later extract the methane from the water to use as fuel. Okay. And so like that all sounds perfectly great. We've got water, water is clean. You know, we drink water and, you know, we're getting methane out the same way that we would otherwise. It's just now we're concentrating it. So why, like, why is fracking such a big thing? Why do people yell about fracking? Fracking? I say that like, you know, mm-hmm. like I'm I'm half asking like, you know, stereotypical dumb guy, but I'm also like, you know, like I'm aware fracking is generally seen as, you know, horrific for the environment, but I don't quite understand why other than like, you know, poisoning the water supply possibly. But I, I, I have accepted that it's bad, but I'd love a breakdown as to why exactly fracking is such a problem. That's the biggest thing is because some of the chemicals that they put in the water to help break it, break through the rocks and, and make the methane more stable as they're extracting it are pretty nasty. And like what, like what kinds of chemicals off the top of my head? I don't know. They're just generally things that aren't easily broken down, um, by, by nature and things that tend to be rather toxic to humans. Okay. So if, you know, the fracking company is responsible and avoid hitting an aquifer, which is, you know, where the, the groundwater essentially, um, then there, it's really generally okay. Really? Okay. However, if they, the, the, the cost of them screwing up is really, really bad. So it's a little bit of a cost benefit. You know, you get you know, some moderate, moderate benefits if done properly versus disastrous consequences if a mistake was made and... I'm imagining a mistake would be rather easy to make. Like, it's not like it's got to be a series of colossal screw-ups in order for that to happen. Not like a, a series. It, like, you could screw up once and have it be real bad. How hard it is to screw up that once, I don't honestly know. Um, okay. You know, I've never worked in, you know, like the energy side of, of geology. Um, but... A couple other things are just like the general blanket statement that like we shouldn't be extracting more fossil fuels from the ground to begin with is kind of an argument against fracking. Mm-hmm. And then also we get, you know, a good amount of natural gas from extracting oil, which we're doing anyway. So it's like, why do we need this extra thing when it has such a terrible cost if you screw it up? Right. And that, I mean, that makes total sense. Just understanding, I guess I never quite understood that like with oil and petroleum, that was more in the ocean, which is, you know, far away from human population centers. Yes and no. So it's, it's, it form. So both of these form in the ocean, Mm -hmm. but the ocean doesn't always stay where it used to be. Right. Okay. Which is why places like North Dakota and places like Texas uh, are, really have a ton of oil because they used to be oceans really really productive oceans with lots of microorganisms um that are now on land and just much more convenient for us to get the oil from them now okay so that more or less oh actually so bringing it back to why it's generally cleaner than burning gasoline or any derivative of petroleum. So similar to how one carbon, you know, methane, burns less energetically than octane, which has eight. If you burn methane, you form one carbon dioxide molecule out of it. If you burn octane, there are six carbons there that creates or I'm sorry, uh, octane has eight. There are eight uh, carbon atoms there that creates eight carbon dioxide molecules. Oh. So okay. per so, I mean, molecule that you burn, you create less carbon dioxide. 
and I assume that we'll get there in the climate change episode, but like carbon dioxide, no bueno for uh, the atmosphere. Right. And methane is infinitely worse. worse. Yes. Well, I shouldn't say infinitely. Like, yeah. <laughs> and uh, an order of magnitude worse uh, or, or more effective as a greenhouse gas than carbon dioxide is. So if you're going to have one or the other in the atmosphere, it should be carbon dioxide. But still, you know, the the methane in the rock isn't going to go anywhere. So it's not really a concern for it getting in the atmosphere. But if you take it out and burn it, then that puts the CO2 in the atmosphere. Right. So that is generally why natural gas is quote-unquote cleaner to burn than like gasoline which like i said has carbon molecules of between six and ten uh carbon atoms and i I think like per per like unit of heat or energy that you get out of burning methane the returns diminish on the amount of energy per carbon molecule or per carbon dioxide molecule it produces as you go up. Huh. That, I would love to know how that happens. Um, well, so basically, so if you have one carbon atom, right, it can have four hydrogen atoms around it. Right. Whereas if you have two carbon atoms, one of their bonds is taken up by the other carbon, which means each carbon can now only have six or uh, each, each carbon can only have three hydrogens around it. Instead of, if they were separate, they each could have four. So there are less total bonds per carbon as you go up and uh, have more carbons in the chain. Mm-hmm. So that just means less atomic bonds to break per carbon, which is where the energy comes from. So it is less efficient than burning methane. At least if if all you're worried about is energy per carbon dioxide molecule. And this is all going back to natural gas, correct? Yes. All right. So that is uh, petroleum and natural gas. So the third fossil fuel that we're going to be talking about is one that gets talked about probably more just because it is much more... People have made it much more political. Uh, And that would be coal. (laughs) So, Mike, what do you know about coal? Um, So, my understanding of coal, um, yeah, I I believe it's solid as compared to the other two, which were like, you know, liquid gas, depending on the circumstances. Right. Um, uh, It's solid. Um, I know that it is um, like, you know, coal mining is a thing and you know just like going in and being a coal miner can be dangerous even mm-hmm. if like you know there's not a collapse like just what it does to the air you will give people black lung right um i know there's a term that gets bandied about called green coal and i remember uh, one of our mutual friends or, uh, Morgan, clean clean coal i think is, is it clean, uh, clean yeah i believe yeah. yeah maybe that's right clean coal and i remember one of our mutual friends morgan um a number of years ago like yelling, at, like I was not saying that she was like yelling at me as a proxy for whom she was actually talking to. <laughs> like, uh, that clean coal is not a thing. Um, and I like I, you know, I am in no position to say I, you know, I believe she's right because she would know these kinds of things. Um, but yeah, it is solid used in trains, I believe. Um, you know, okay. I just have like I have the old school imagination of like you know dude with a shovel like you know shoveling coal into a uh, um, a train furnace. But yeah, that's that's my rough understanding of of coal is that there's no real such thing as clean coal. It is rather dirty. I believe it's made of carbon, uh, which would kind of go with uh, the theme here. For some reason, carbon's definitely mm-hmm. sticking in my head with that. But that's yeah, that's most of what I understand about coal. I mean, that's that's more or less correct. Um, there is really, you know, our friend Morgan is correct. There is really no such thing as clean coal. Um, I don't really know how that ever became a thing. I think it just sounds kind of nice. People it's, it's want to believe that people. it's cleaner yeah. than it is, but like it's it's not. Um, <laughs> so things for that for what coal is used for, 
in in our society is previously it was used a lot for heat, um, particularly in like pre-electric times. Um, people would burn it in their house for heat and, you know, to boil water and stuff like that. Nowadays, it is almost exclusively used for electric or electricity production in power plants. Oh, okay. That actually, that, yeah, that actually makes sense. I never thought about that. Yeah. So basically how power plants work is they burn a bunch of something, you know, you could do it with wood, but it's much less efficient. Um, but you burn coal that heats up a big tub of water. As the water evaporates, it rises and turns essentially a windmill inside the big tower of the, uh, power plant. So all the stuff you see coming out of like a power plant is just steam. So, and the turning of the windmill generates electricity, just like uh, a, a wind turbine out in a field would. Okay, so once again, for those that don't know, I'm the dumb guy in the podcast, but this this sounds like wind energy with extra steps. You are absolutely correct. Um, okay, what the so, how how does that work? You, it is much. Um, I shouldn't say much. It is generally more efficient in the sense that, like you can generate a larger total sum of power more quickly. Okay. Because the steam rising moves faster than air will, or wind will sort of on its own. Okay. In that sense. Um, That makes some amount of sense, even if... And also as as a side tangent, that nuclear power plants work fundamentally the exact same, except you're just doing nuclear things to heat up the water instead (laughs) Um, okay. so like the steam coming out of like a nuclear power plant, which you and I have seen a bunch of in Oswego, New York. Um, so that's just water vapor. There's nothing inherently wrong with that water vapor because the, the nuclear material is completely separate from that water. Right. Uh, Obviously, or else that'd be really bad. I would love to have an episode on, on nuclear power because this is something I feel like I know a little bit about and have some thoughts on, but they are not. We can we can rope that into the to the be. eventual climate change episode. I am I am looking forward to that because nuclear power is something that I I have some thoughts on. Yeah. <laughs> <laughs> um, but yeah, so coal coal is fundamentally fundamentally different um, from petroleum or natural gas in something that you hit on very nicely, in that it's solid. Coal is actually a rock. It is it is a type of <laughs> rock. Okay. Um. That makes total sense. Once again, just never Mm -hmm. thought about it like that. And it is unlike, uh, you know, petroleum and natural gas. It is formed from plants, almost exclusively on land. So, and also almost exclusively from two geologic periods, the Carboniferous period and the Permian period. A total stretch of about 100 million years of time. Uh, from about 360 or so to 252 million years ago. About 90% of our total coal comes from those two periods. Hmm. And it's called... That's, that's car- across the world or just in the United States? Across the world. Okay. Uh, it's called Carboniferous period for a reason. Uh, <laughs> it was called that yeah. because that's where the... the carbon. Well, the, the British people, you know, uh, carbon is, uh, you know, what they called coal. It's where they got, got all, their, all their coal from. So they called the units that they associated with that time, uh, or the, the time associated with those units, the Carboniferous period. So back in these periods, especially the Carboniferous, uh, less so the Permian, but these is still sort of applied, that there were gigantic, like almost planet-wide swamps. Basically, if it was like land surface, um particularly by the coasts, but it was all swamp and forest. And uh, there were lots of things dying. Swamps are almost always a great place for things to get preserved for the same reason that uh, the bottom of the ocean is, that there's just not a lot of oxygen in swamp water. Mm -hmm. Because there's so many things falling in there and dying 
that when things decompose, it absorbs oxygen from the water. And then, but without oxygen, things can't decompose. So more things just fall and it, you know, drops oxygen even lower and things get preserved beautifully. That's where some of our best, like, mammoth, you know, full mammoth uh, skeletons are, and, you know, with, with, like, organs and things intact are from, are they're from swamps. That's wild. Yeah. Gosh. And, uh, but there's also some weird things that went on specifically around this time that add to this and why it's so good. A, just like, again, the planet-wide swamp slash forests. Obviously, that's great for it. But another thing is that it was around this time that plants evolved a compound called lignin, which is a hydrocarbon or a, I guess a carbon-based molecule that they use in their cellulose to give them structure, Uh, especially woody plants like trees. They evolved the way to develop or to like, you know, just make this compound. And obviously because it was brand new, no organisms had ever made it before. Nothing had yet evolved to be able to break that down once that tree died. So there were trees dying, but the fungus and bacteria around at the time couldn't eat the dead tree. So it just sat there. Just sat there. And piled up and piled up and piled up. And because also they fell into the swamps, which were really good at preserving things anyway, it is a perfect scenario for preserving those trees. And then another thing also is that because there's so many plants around, that means that there's a lot of oxygen in the air during the Carboniferous period. That was when we're, you know, very confident that uh, atmospheric oxygen was at its all-time highest level. Lots of oxygen and lots of foresty material means lots of forest fires. Lots of forest fires means lots of naturally produced charcoal, which even today is extremely hard for anything to break down and decompose. Charcoal is basically already coal. Yeah, you know, as you said that, like I had one of those things where it's like, I wonder how long everybody else knew this and I was in the dark. Like coal and charcoal, like the word coal is in charcoal. I never made that connection, never it is, realized it. Mm-hmm. It is much less concentrated. <laughs> I'm such a moron. <laughs> charcoal is much less concentrated carbon than coal proper is but it is still you know relatively concentrated and hard to break down so the charcoal would then you know burn and fall into these swamps to then just become this giant mass of carbon building up with nothing to break it down and this just made a extremely good uh like perfect storm to produce massive, massive, massive amounts of coal the planet over. And, you know, eventually that would just get buried, as things do. And eventually, you know, over time, you know, hundreds of millions of years later, after it got buried, it would be uplifted by, like, a mountain-building event or just or eroded down to, to expose the coal. And then once we figured out, okay, there's coal in this area... We started digging around underground in mines and things for it. And that's how we get coal mines and things like that today. Um, Okay. So that is how, obviously, there are coal that has formed in almost every period, realistically. Um, You can actually go and find places today where coal is forming in things like swamps uh, and and peats. The the, the very first baby steps. Very first baby steps of, of coal. Right, okay. Um. And so there's actually different kinds of coal uh, that vary based on their concentratedness, their concentration, that's the scientific word, uh, of carbon. So the least one is uh, called lignite because it's you know made from lignin. Mm-hmm. Makes sense. Um, which is really low grade, meaning it hasn't been heated up all that much. It's honestly kind of just really flammable dirt realistically um <laughs> it's not really lithified at all in total it's between 25 and 35 percent carbon 
total. Mm-hmm. The next one up is called sub bituminous coal. Sub sub bituminous. Right, because the the next one up is called bituminous. So is there any relation to butane? Like that sounds close. Nope, it's uh, spelled B I T instead of B U T. Um, but yeah, I don't know the origin of the word bituminous, but might be something fun to look up eventually. I don't know. Um, yeah, another time. But sub bituminous is more solid and lithified than lignite is, uh, and it's between thirty-five and forty-five percent carbon. Moving up, uh, you get to bituminous coal, even more hard, even more lithified. And the range on this one extends quite a lot. It's between 45 and 86% carbon. I don't know who decided these rules. <laughs> they seem pretty arbitrary to me, but whatever. Um, and then the, the most concentrated form of coal is called anthracite coal. Um, and that is between 86 and 98% carbon. 86 and 98% carbon. Wow. Is yes. It like, what happens if there's more than 98%? Is that just not a thing? Uh, then that becomes something like graphite. Oh, okay. It's a little pencil lead. Right. So graphite is pure carbon. However, it is the bonds between the hydrogen and the carbon that make it flammable and good for burning. Mm-hmm. So if there's no hydrogen there, it's very, very stable. You know, graphite is basically not flammable at all. Hmm. Uh, That's good to know as a teacher who's around pencils a lot and you know, some <laughs> unstable kids, but okay. But yeah, so those, those are different kinds of coal. Um, and that just depends on like how deeply it got buried, essentially. Mm-hmm. And so that's, that's coal in a nutshell. So I kind of want to close this up by saying like, okay, so... We've talked all about these these hydrocarbons, and we all kind of know that burning hydrocarbons is bad. We've talked about that quite a bit so far in this episode. But, like, why? Why is it bad? And the mm-hmm. obvious answer that most people know is that it because it puts carbon dioxide in the atmosphere. That was the answer I was going to give. But as we sort of talked about, you know, carbon dioxide gets put in the atmosphere all the time. Um, you know, these... Things like uh, the forest fires that I was just talking about. That must have put a ton of carbon dioxide in the atmosphere. You know, you're burning a bunch of trees. Burning things, burning pretty much any living material in general will release carbon dioxide. Right. So why is this bad specifically? So in nature, these these hydrocarbons, whether it's coal, natural gas, or petroleum, that we take out and burn would have stayed there inaccessible to, you know, the surface for millions and millions more years. And so by bringing it up before it's ready, essentially, before nature is ready for it more accurately, um, we are artificially, you know, increasing CO2 that way because it, it would come up by itself in due time. Like that's, that's a, I guarantee it, whether, whether it's, Mm -hmm. you know, a million years from now or, you know, 500 million years from now, that carbon that is stored underground in these various fossil fuel ways would have been brought to the surface by some means at some point, and then been put back into the carbon cycle to be taken up by a plant eventually and working in the cycle like that again. Right. Is it like a naturally occurring process though? Exactly. And by bringing it up too early, we're increasing that carbon dioxide content more quickly than nature can adjust if it was just left to do it on its own accord. Mm -hmm. And so there are times in history, and this is going to be a little prelude to our climate change episode, where, uh, you know, one of these massive coal seams, we think, caught on fire. And... Many, many, many things across the world died. Just from that, just from like, you know, what are the, what are the reservoirs of coal catching on fire? I mean, not just, but we're pretty sure that was a very large part of it. And right. this coal seam, we're pretty sure was like the size of several Eastern European countries. <laughs> oh, goodness. Okay. Um, yeah. 
So pulling that carbon out of the rock before it is ready too quickly is very bad for essentially everything that lives on the planet. And does that kind of wrap up the, uh, you know, kind of our, our oil episode, our, you know, oil, natural gas and, uh, and coal, does that kind of put a button on, you know, everything we need to know heading into our climate change episode? I think so. Um, you know, like you said at the beginning, it's, it's kind of hard to know. So to really understand climate change without understanding sort of what we're actually doing. And so even though it might've just sounded very obvious where it's like, okay, we're bringing carbon out of the ground and putting it into the air. But a lot of people say like, oh, you know, climate change, the, the stuff that we're seeing is, is just what nature would do anyway. No, no, it's not. In fact, um, yes, we are, even before we started mucking with the atmospheric carbon levels, um, we were in like an interglacial period caused mostly by the Himalayas. The Himalayas? Um, well, I should say a lot of the glaciers were caused by the Himalayas. Because what do you mean caused by the Himalayas? Like, what, what does that mean? Side tangent. So, um, when certain types of rock erode, they suck carbon dioxide from the atmosphere. Okay. Just in, in the, the way that they weather, it, the chemical reaction that happens absorbs carbon dioxide and takes it out of the atmosphere. When the Himalayas rise, that is a lot of rock to be eroded. And so that's what a lot of people sort of think might have kickstarted like the Ice Age. Things have been getting gradually cooler for, okay. for a long time before that, but that's what some people think really kickstarted it uh, and like the massive glaciations we saw during the Ice Age. Some people also think that like the Himalayas rising slowed, which is something that partially contributed to the current interglacial cycle that we are in. That I, wow. Blew my mind at the end of the episode. Yep. <laughs> All right. So, um, so like that, that is about it on uh, what we have here for, uh, uh, for oil, coal, and natural gas. I think so. Wonderful. Well, thank you, Gavin, for, uh, for breaking that down. That was, um, you know, like I said, kind of at the outset, we've all kind of heard of natural gas, you know, going back to, at least for me, elementary school, um, you know, and like, you know, it was bad, you know, burning natural gas is bad and it releases carbon dioxide into the air, but just getting sort of that breakdown of the differences between the different kinds of, uh, different kinds of, uh, oils. What's the, what's the proper term to refer to all three of these oil, coal, and natural gas? Just fossil fuels. Fossil fuels. I, you know what? I knew that. (laughs) I swear I knew that. Um, But just like hearing the breakdown of what makes, you know, what makes them different and yet, you know, what makes them all the same, what makes them, you know, know, what makes them problematic is really helpful for me uh, as we go into our next episode. So uh, thank you very much, Gavin. And I look forward to seeing you next week. Absolutely, buddy. See you then. Awesome. Take care, everybody. And we will see you all next week with another episode of I Wish You Were Dead, a podcast about things that used to be alive. Take care, everyone. This episode of I Wish You Were Dead was written by Gavin Davidson and hosted by Gavin Davidson, Mike Bryson, and Fanella Campanino. It was sound edited by Mike Bryson and edited for YouTube by Gavin Davidson. Special thanks to former guests of the pod and to listeners like you.